we are live. Hi, everyone. This is Kate. And I have here Marissa Fong. Hi, Marissa. Hey. <laughs> I'm from New Zealand. <laughs> yes. All the way from New Zealand. What time is it there right it's now? It's Monday. Uh, it's Monday at just after 11. <laughs> after 11. Well, I'm very excited for you to be here. I met you in Portugal. And yes. I, yes. And I remember we were having dinner with your, your husband was there. Simon yeah. Was yeah. There, right? Yeah. Yeah. So um, I really had a great conversation with you. And so I really appreciate you joining our podcast today. I'm oh, really excited to, I've been listening to your other ones. They're really good. So wow. I was excited to be invited. Thank you. So Marissa, everyone, um, co-founded the Madison Group in 1998, successfully growing it to become New Zealand's largest private-owned recruitment company. And currently, she's a non-executive independent director of listed company and price group, co-founder of Arne Skincare, which I'm passionate about, and you're launching it this year. I can't wait to hear all your story. Category judge for New Zealand, New Zealander of the Year, a trustee of simplicity and new law fees and not for profit Kiwi Saver Fund. So you're doing a lot of things. How do you have time, Marissa? Yeah, I, yeah, I just. I guess I'm just managing it. I'm just managing it and just kind of trying to find slots in the diary and just be, be semi-disciplined about what I say yes to, you know? Mm-hmm. But it's really hard for me to say no to stuff. So that's probably why I end up doing things, you know, more things than I should write. I think we're all guilty of that. <laughs> okay, so I read this article and it says there you drop out twice in college, right? Yeah. So tell yeah. me about that. With your parents, you're not okay. Oh, yeah, just so not okay with that. Um, You know, look, my parents are a typical immigrant story, you know, arrived in New Zealand to give their children a better life um, and really wanted them all to get college educations because that's what they didn't have the opportunity to do. And me being the oldest, it's even worse because I'm meant to be setting the role model, you know, being the role model. And um, I guess it just didn't, I just didn't, it just didn't take. I just couldn't sit in a classroom and be talked at um, in theory. And I just couldn't get my head around it. Um, and it really kind of bothers, bothered me, you know, like I, I thought, why can I not do this? So I tried a couple of times, <laughs> but it really just wasn't me. And I was too social, way too social. <laughs> that didn't help. Um, yeah, so that really, um, I guess... And also because when I was younger, um, my parents and I didn't get on. So because uh, I was too independent and I ended up um, leaving home very early and getting a job really early. So I could find, I found that I could make money and get jobs more easily than I could apply myself at college. So that was kind of like, well, I can do that. And I can't do that. So I'll do that then. <laughs> so that's okay. how it happened. All right. So um, where did you grow up? So... So here's what I say. Made in Hong Kong, born in New Zealand. So my mother arrived here seven months pregnant um, with me. So um, 
born in New Zealand, Auckland, which is the biggest city, but not the capital. And Auckland is um, known for quite a transient population because we're one of the biggest cities. So lots of people come regionally um, into the city. So, but I'm one of the few handful, I would guess, or a few core that was actually born and bred here. Yep, raised here. Okay, so... So describe a person or a situation from your childhood that had a profound effect on the way you look at life. Oh, that's a good question. Um, so I guess I had this saying about having a foot in each camp, right? Mm-hmm. Where you don't really fit with the local culture because we were one of the only Asian families in our neighborhood, right? So there was one other family which was ethnic, which was um, indigenous. He, they were Maori. So mm-hmm. um, we had one Maori family and one Asian family at primary school. So, you know, and it was really interesting because people say it wasn't that difficult. We, was there, you know, did you experience racism? I have this really weird view on that. And in fact, I flipped it the other way and I didn't even know I really did this because I actually thought we were special. <laughs> I thought, actually, we stand out, we're kind of different, we're not the same as everybody else, that's kind of cool. So I actually took it from a different point of view, because everybody knew us, right? Like it was, we know that family, because they're the only people that are Chinese in this neighborhood. So I guess um, I have to say that um, I felt very protected in a way, with that point of view. But also my mother was also very fiercely protective of us. And um, I remember a few times if she ever thought we were being discriminated against, particularly in um, the local grocery store or somebody passed a comment or something. My mother, who is amazing, was like, she must have only been like 20s, in her early 20s, right? Mm-hmm. She's this woman that's not in a familiar environment. She would just call them out. Like mm. had no fear, absolutely no fear in calling them out in front of us and protecting us all the time. So I think I get that feeling of being um, special and positive about it because of her protective, fierce, fiercely protective instincts and that she would absolutely visibly demonstrate that to us. So pretty, pretty, when you think about it now, it's like, wow, a lot of women would just kind of pretend it wasn't happening and shuffle their kids out, right? But yeah, no, my mother was never, never going to let that happen. <laughs> wow. Do you consider your mom as a tiger mom? Oh, absolutely. Oh, my <laughs> God, yes. Oh, yes, 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 yes. <laughs> but in a really kind of good way, like, I mean, mm-hmm. like, you know, just so ambitious for us, wanted us always to have a better life, always telling stories about her own um, very difficult childhood and poverty. So always sharing those stories uh, to the point where, you know, you kind of get, you've heard them a thousand times and you think, oh God, it's just, just I cannot listen to this another time, right? Mm-hmm. And when you're a child, you think like that. But when you grow up, you realize how much that has an influence on you. So I think, um, I thank my mother actually for that because it's given me a perspective on life and um, it's very different, I think, to people who brought up in more privileged households. Okay, so your parents, um, what do they do? Do they have their own business or? Um, yeah, they were definitely my role model entrepreneurs, right? People go, where did, you know, my father um, and mother, my father worked in um, restaurants for other people. 
until he got to a certain age, could get enough money together to start his own restaurant. Um, and mum always worked at home from when we were small because she just really, really did not want us to have no money. So she was always um, doing, I don't know if you, I don't know if you have this, but piecework, you know, sewing, um, making piecework at home. So you got paid per piece. So if you were doing trims on clothes, all that kind of stuff, she always did that from home. So she always was making money as well. And we would help her. So we would be, and the, the kids would be sitting there helping her, you know, if it was putting teddy bear's eyes and teddy bear's things, we would be doing that with her. So because the more she made, the more money, you know, the more she did, the more money we made. Mm -hmm. So I guess um, they, and then my parents started up really great um, restaurant chain and that did really well. And then they bought a lot of property as well. So they were smart and investing in property. And so they retired actually quite early, but they worked really hard for quite in their early years and retired in their 50s yeah okay so tell me did you work in the restaurant oh yeah okay oh so yeah tell me how old were you and what were you doing i started around 12 um mm -hmm. initially just to pop in on the odd weekend to help my father out um on the waitressing side of it um taking orders for takeaway orders that kind of thing and then then i got a bit older probably about 14 or so um worked pretty much every weekend and the dining part as the waitress. Um, my brothers would and my sisters would come as well. They would do their own, um, they would be waitressing or, or taking orders or washing dishes, that kind of stuff. So the whole family pretty much. Um, and then in the school breaks, you know, semester breaks, I would um, work there reasonably full time through the week. Right. So okay. yeah. So your family owned this restaurant. It was one restaurant and they scale it into how many chains? Well, they grew, they had about in the end, well, they would grow one, sell, get a bigger one, sell it. And then they got to the point where they actually built their own building and made their own restaurant. And that was a really big one. And they had that one for quite a long time. So they were really sort of buy, grow, develop, sell, <laughs> you know, develop, grow, sell. So they were exiting these little restaurants and making more and more money, you know, like and getting better and better at it. And yeah, and getting, scaling them up to make them bigger each time. So they were doing really well. They worked really hard. That's amazing. So is that the reason, is that contribute to your success? Yeah, I think um, I heard Daisy was talking about work ethic um, in one of your previous podcasts. And yeah. I think that absolutely is something that I think makes a big difference, work ethic. Um, just that huge drive to work. Uh, I think... You know, in hindsight, um, even my mother has said maybe um, it was too far that way and she had little, spent, didn't spend as much time with us as she would have liked because she was always out of the house. Um, so she has that regret, but, you know, we don't. I, I, I look at it and say, well, actually, it taught us to be incredibly independent and self-sufficient. You know, we cooked for ourselves, we did our laundry, we didn't, you know, we had, you didn't have any kind of, you know, privileges like, you know, we all worked in the home and in the restaurant. And I think it's that work ethic, that drive to do better um, and have that financial security is really big for me, yep. Okay, so you drop out of college. Tell me what made you, you know, what made, uh, what was that in your head to start your own company? Did so you for someone else? Beforehand. Yeah, I did work. Yeah, I worked for quite a few people. I didn't really know um, what my passion was going to be. I really 
didn't, I knew I loved dealing with people. I knew I was really good with people. I really, so then I kind of fell into marketing and sales for, I worked for a record company. I worked for um, a publishing company. I ended up um, working for a big corporate as well. Um, And then I ended up in, I was kind of in between jobs, wondering what to do. And then I went to a recruitment company and I was looking at this person on the other side thinking, I really like what you do. I wonder if I could do that job, you know? And um, so I asked her about it and she was really kind. I still remember she spent an hour with me telling me all about it, what I needed to do, how I could get into the industry. And so then I just started applying for those jobs um, and finally got one with a very small company and um, grew, we helped grow that company to become quite big. And, and, and then he kind of, I don't know, he didn't manage it well, mismanaged the company. And so the company went into liquidation. I had to make all these stuff redundant. And I was only 20, I think probably in my mid, late 20s, making mm-hmm. people older than me because I managed them all, having to tell them the doors are shut and I'm having to make you redundant. Sorry. <laughs> you know, it was really all, an awful experience. Um, and then going to work for a really big corporate, which was um, a company called Adeco, which I know um, is in the States as well. So um, it was a very big global. So I worked for them for a while. And then while well, I, I was up to national sales director and I was in Australia and I was talking to my equivalent over there. And um, I was kind of saying how globally um, the global leadership didn't really know what we were doing. We're having some troubles with um, company culture our man our ceo wasn't great at that so and he said you know what he said you do know that the new zealand total revenue is the rounding up of the decimal point for the global revenues i was like what he said you're the like the rounding up number of the decimal point so you know pretty much told us we were insignificant and really didn't matter and why would they pay attention to us and in that moment i had this epiphany of holy crap, <laughs> why would they care? Yeah, I'm slogging my guts out for a company that doesn't even know I exist. Why would I keep doing that? <laughs> you know. And so I ended up going out with a woman um, that I just dearly love. So we co-founded Madison together, um, and she was just she was ten years older than me. She was, you know, um, she'd been in business herself. I'd hired her in um, as a consultant. And uh, we just got on really well. And we decided, let's just go and do this ourselves. This is just crazy that we're working so hard for people who just don't care, right? So, so that's what we did. Yeah. So you, you started with just two of you. How did you yep. grow into 100 staff and became a public company in New Zealand? Like, I, I had to... Oh, I know. Yeah, well, it was, it was weird because... I guess this is the thing about having worked for corporates is that mm-hmm. I still thought like I was working for a corporate. And because I'd been one of the people that went out and pitched for big pieces of business, I knew how to do it, right? I knew how to reply to tenders. I knew how to pitch for big volume pieces of work. And so we just did that. I just thought, I'll just keep doing that. Like, you know, I acted like we were a big company because that's how I'd always been <laughs> working in a big company. Yeah. Didn't think we could not do it. And um, so we just, I just started, we just started pitching for big pieces of, and we did a lot of work in the call center space. So there were a lot of uh, big volume recruits uh, to set up call centers and we would win them because I was really good at this bit, right? (laughs) And so then we'd go, oh, we've won it now. Okay. Oops. We better hire some people to actually uh, hire these, recruit these staff. And so we go, okay, let's go and 
um, hire so-and-so and hire so-and-so. And then we just, we just didn't think we could not do it, right? We just said um, yes and, and acted like a big company, pitched for these things, and then figured out how to do it afterwards. And because we were experienced, we knew how to do it. So we just yeah. we could hire the people and just make it happen. And then we go to the next one and the next one. And before we knew it, we were at 30 people. We're like, wow, how did this happen? Okay. And we were having opening new offices around the country. And yeah, just went crazy. <laughs> Okay, so Marissa, how is it like having a partner? Did it serve you? How is that? Do you have some challenges? Yeah, uh, it's really interesting. Um, a lot of people have asked me that question about how was it that we were so successful? And I think it was because I do think business is lonely um, if you're on your own. It's hard, you know, and um, and you know, you and I are part of entrepreneurs' organisations, so I think that a lot of people gravitate towards that organisation because maybe they um, want to find like-minded people that they can share their experiences with and share their challenges with. So I think being in a partnership is a bit like that if you have a good partner, right? Mm-hmm. And I have had the good fortune of being in partnerships three times now, and so um, and I think the reason why they've worked is that we have very much um, worked out what our values alignment is. Mm-hmm. Do we believe in the same values? Do we believe in the same things? And, um, and do we behave and believe in fairness? And honestly, um, I have, we've never had any issues. I have, I, we, never, we just had so much fun. We were, and you know, sometimes when I'd be like just wound up about something, it was good to have someone else who knew the issue and just say, okay, well, and wasn't so one that would just calm me down. And then vice versa, I'd do it for her as well. You know, she'd be like crazy about something and I'd be like, oh yeah, but okay, but think about it like that. And so we just kind of would stabilize each other. So it was kind of really good, but it was fun growing it and sharing the ups and downs. And, you know, when things were just going really terrible or we'd lost some deal or something bad had happened, we could brainstorm it out together, you know, and yeah. It was it was really good, but I have heard horrible stories about partnerships, and I think um, maybe that's where people don't know each other well enough, yeah. and they go into business without knowing each other really yeah. well. Yeah. And I think that's where I've made good decisions. I've known these people well before I got into bed with them, so to speak. Yeah. Okay, so would you looking at partner? you know you 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 really make sure you guys are aligned with your culture and values because that's one of my fear and that's the reason why I'm very hesitant to having a partner yeah and you're actually one of the few that you just went exactly excel with a partner it's like wow you just made it like it sounds so easy <laughs> well it's not easy but I think it's like dating right like you mm-hmm. know before you get married you go on a lot of dates you know <laughs> so it's kind of the same thing I think it's just being really clear to see them in every situation you know like how do they deal with challenges how do they deal with problems um how good humored are they you know you've got to be with someone that um is either fun is fun to be with or you enjoy being with and if you're not um, sure. if you're not having fun with them or if you don't share, if one's too intense and is just, you know, it, it takes the, sucks the joy out of life, well, you've got to know that before you get in. And I think um, hanging out with someone in non-work situations, just seeing what they're like outside of work, all that kind of stuff matters. Um, and I think that's where, because my business partner and I had worked together, I had really seen her in high stress situations. She'd seen me in high stress situations. Um, and then we'd start mix so- mingle socially. So it's the same thing. It's just 
almost going through a long like interview you know <laughs> yeah okay so you um you can't co-founded um you co-founded the Madison Group. When did you uh, you sold that to? Well, what happened was we went through the GFC, right? So uh-huh. the GFC was like we had a hundred staff. We were like really pumping, you know, pretty much like what's just happened now. Everything was going really great, guns, right? Everything was just booming, and then the GFC happened, and it was a financial collapse, infrastructure collapse globally. So. Um, what happened was we, we were in Australia at the time when it hit, like when the Lehman Brothers thing hit. And we were in Australia on a, um, a weekend away um, incentive trip give, provided to us by our um, online job board. And um, so we were with all these other recruitment leaders as well because we were the top, well, the top 20 in Australia and New Zealand, right? So we were there and it was actually the um, Packer estate and he, uh, you know, the super super wealthy like he's like worth billions right Mm -hmm. and we were on their estate and um he was meant to join us and then the world went to hell at the handbasket overnight and i think he wiped off something like a billion dollars off his personal wealth right just disappeared overnight so he didn't want to join us for drinks after that he was a little bit depressed Mm -hmm. (laughs) which you can kind of understand but all these recruitment leaders were sitting there saying um okay uh this is going to be really bad and we were like, oh, no, we'll be fine, you know. And we were kind of listening, but not sure. We get back to New Zealand. We're like, what do we do now? Anyway, um, after the GFC, the staff kind of, we, we kind of shrunk to about half our size. Uh-huh. But we didn't, we didn't lose any money as such. We, in fact, because we got leaner and much more efficient, the following year was one of our most profitable years. It was crazy. It was just crazy. So I think what it was the, uh, showed us was that, you know, when you have year on year on year of growth, things get a bit slack. Things get a bit um, fat. You know, we're, we're very free with our incentives and we're paying people lots of money and we're, you know, having great trips and all this kind of thing. And we're doing things we probably wouldn't really necessarily need to do. And then when things got tight, it was like, wow, we didn't actually need any of that stuff, you know. So then we started looking for a CEO because we decided we um, – well, we'd been looking for a little while, thinking about what our next steps were, because we were back in growth mode, um, literally a year after the GFC. So as we appointed him, he wrote a little article about what maybe our strategy would be for the business. And there was a little bit of bait put out there about whether or not we were going to be um, interested in exiting one day. And so we got approached by this big public company that said, oh, we saw that you were appointed this um, CEO and you're looking at you know what your might plans might be we're interested in talking to you so then they came to us with different various proposals which we kept sort of saying no to because we were doing really well and we didn't need to sell and I think that's the best space to be in because you're really being courted and you really don't need to sell so the the, the offer just got bigger and bigger and bigger until it got to the point where we were like oh, okay now it's getting really ridiculous now <laughs> we just have to kind of go um, really, we probably want to start thinking about this now, seriously. And so um, we put up a number there and then they finally met the number and then that was the deal done. It was, um, it was insane. That's, that's amazing. So what's your typical day like now? Yeah, this is the funny thing. Post-sale, it was really um, interesting trying to find structure in my life. Um, when you've got a business, you, you, you're really driven by the activity of the business, right? You've got to get up, you've got to get there. I found it really hard, actually, because suddenly I was just almost, you just almost cut adrift, right? And then you're out there 
kind of, you don't want to be aimless. So you, you throw yourself into things. So that, that next two years, I was just saying yes to everything because I felt like I needed really lots of activity to fill this void. Yeah. And, um, and I made some mistakes, you know, I really did some things I shouldn't have done. And because I was just saying yes to things and I, I really wasn't being very intentional about it, what I was saying yes to, even though people were advising me, oh, they told you not to do anything for a year and just to sit on my hands. Well, that was just really hard advice to take because I was so not used to that. So I was doing things and then, so now a few years on, I really am much more careful about what I say yes to now. So I get up, um, it's pretty much try and exercise, get up at a reasonable time, exercise, you know, uh, then deal with um, sort of core things I look at in the morning is just checking financials, like, you know, um, I have a portfolio, investment portfolio, I look at my bank details, make sure pay bills, whatever, and then get into the, um, what is the most important thing to get done today? The one thing, right? The one thing. There's a book called The One Thing, right? So what is the one thing? So then I have to really try and focus because if I don't do that, then it's really amazing how the day can just get away on you doing things that really are not important. So that's really important for me to just get get on that. that yeah, it's so hard. Like I feel like we have so much time though. Like, like you said, like what am I going to do? I don't want to waste this time. Like, you can't just relax on that doing because we're so used to like pounding sand like every day, right? But I kind of like it this though because we have a little bit of break and just do whatever we want to do. Yeah, and I think um, we can be too hard on ourselves when we're working. I think I was really always feeling like I had to be incredibly productive all the time and all this kind of thing and really busy and, and you know, that work ethic thing was always kicking in, you know. So I never want to go back to doing that. I never want to do nothing, but I never want to go back to that thing where actually there isn't that balance, you know. Um, and I think what I found for myself was when I was in the height of the activity of growing the business, um, I don't think health-wise I was that great, you know. I, I was quite stressed and I'm, um, you know, and I always felt like I was um, very heavy, you know, felt very heavy all the time. And so I think now uh, understanding, I think maybe this is a, a great reset opportunity for people to say, okay, when I go back into the world again, when the world comes back to rights, do I want my life to be the way it was before? And um, so I've had this opportunity to do that over the last few years, right? But it's almost like the world has given everyone the chance to do that over the next um, few weeks, you know, to really go, what, actually, what's really important? You know, I'm loving cooking every night. I'm loving that. I used to do that a lot before when I was younger. And then we, you know, got busier. And then I was, we were going out a lot to dinner. We were getting a lot of take, you know, delivery food. Now I'm like, actually, I've just rediscovered this joy of cooking again, you know. And so one of the things that I think when I come out of this is that I probably will start cooking more often, you know, than I had been, you know, That's so little things like that. Yeah. yeah. So um, Marissa, what was one of your deepest motivation in life? It used to be um, financial security. It, I was really, really driven by having, always having enough money in the bank, you know, and I still suffer from that a little bit every now and then. So I'm very careful to be um, not uh, too worried about, um, and so therefore sometimes I can be a bit risk averse, you know, I don't want to invest in a property or I don't want to do this because, oh, it might be too much money and this kind of thing. 
Um, and so, oh, look, I'm very comfortably off because of the exit. And so I don't really have to work again. But I have to be careful with, I feel sometimes there's this, care, this careful thing. Also then balanced by this um, drive to uh, help grow other businesses or invest, which is why I have this angel investment portfolio. So I invest in angels um, and startups to help other businesses. And then looking at this new business, um, I'm looking at a growth to, to actually leverage what I have and um, grow greater opportunity. But then this one, the skincare one, isn't actually about making more money because I'm probably going to spend a lot of money growing it. But it's more about doing something else that's different, you know, to what I've done before. Yeah. So now my motivation is learning. Now my motivation is what can I learn? How can I grow? What can I do that, that really challenges me now? You know, whereas before it was about financial security and about having enough money in the bank. Now I've got that. Now it's like, okay, what can I do that will really be so different? I've never done it before that I could just get these amazing learnings. Okay. Right. Um, You've had all the successes and um, I'm so impressed how you just exit and sell and exit and create again. And sell. <laughs> I want to have that courage to do it myself. What's your greatest failure so far? Uh, greatest failure. Probably, um, as I said, when I first came out of the, um, the business, I was just so worried about not um, keeping in touch with, what was relevant in the world. You know, when you're in the business world, you feel very relevant and you feel quite needed in your business, right? So what I did was I, I got approached by quite a few organizations who knew that I had this pot of money, right? They go, so they, they know, right? And they go, oh, I wonder if we could get them to invest in my business. So I got approached by a few. I invested in a business that I knew nothing about. Um, and I was a, just a, a shareholder and an investor. Ended up, they asked me to be on the board and chair and I did all of that, which was, that was fine. But what I realized was um, that the, the business I'd invested in, the person was not really able to execute on the plan, right? So in the end, the business just failed. Like it just was completely, I mean, the idea is still good, the concept is great, but the execution just could not be delivered because the people that I had thought could do it, the founders couldn't do it. Um, so it, that was a really big failure of um, capital lost, um, energy and time invested. And I really learned from that, that again, um, and it goes back to that thing I said before, you know, really understanding these people better than I did in a, in a you know, 20 minute pitch meeting and then maybe a one coffee meeting with them and then, you know, go, yeah, and then putting all this money in. It was just crazy, you know. So really understanding, um, again, about the people. And I, I completely misread that one. And, um, and, and therefore, subsequently, as they've lost money, time, effort, um, I introduced other people to the investment because at that stage, really believed in it and they lost money. So I felt really bad about that. You know, it was just, it was just, um, yeah, it was, it was, that was a really big lesson for me. In what space was that? Uh, what business? Well, they in were in the um, uh, 
architectural um, paints and coatings. And so it was a new way of creating pigment into paint. So it was actually a dry color rather than a liquid tint, which doesn't deliver great um, coverage. I mean, these were beautiful natural materials as well. So they were very um, eco-friendly, good for um, uh, households with sensitivities. So the concept was really great, right? Um, the story was really great. Uh, but as I say, just the execution didn't work out. And I, I, what did I know about architectural coatings and paints? Nothing. You know? So I don't even know I was there, really. So what made you decide to invest in that? The, the story was so good and you... And the founder was convincing. Like, there were a couple, right? And she was just so convincing and passionate and really bright, right? Really smart. So it had nothing to do with whether or not... Um, they were the idea or that but in the end um there was just a lot of uh disconnect between the narrative we were being given and then actually what was actually what happening yeah. Gotcha. yeah 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 and how long was that you were involved with that before it disappeared oh about two years oh, two years two years yeah like we really tried to make it work trust me really tried to make it work appointed other people in there and a whole lot of other stuff just did not we just could not make that work yeah okay so what made you decide like okay I'm done with it what was that well in the end we just had no nobody had any more confidence in putting any more money and I certainly didn't um and so at that point the company just ran out of money so it was a pretty easy decision to just say and then somebody came along and said well I'll give you you know a dollar one and five you know uh, and so bought it for 20 percent basically so we were all diluted and then um I don't it's still struggling yep I um I love how you fully move on to that one um it sounds like you put a lot of time and money and effort into making it happen. Yeah. Yeah. That, I, so it was a big lesson, a big lesson. <laughs> so what are you going to be looking after for your next investment now? I know you, you really, what did you learn from it? I know you mentioned that you really need to get to know the founder. and. So to- I really am um, now... I, I'm a lot more, so people say when you're looking at angel investing, they say, oh, if you've got a B grade idea, but you've got an A grade execution team, um, that's the best, you know, you're, you're better to do that than have an A grade idea and a B grade execution team, right? B grade founders or whatever. I'm like, you know what? You've got to have an A and an A. <laughs> yeah. There's no B or A, there's A and A. So you've got to have a really good idea and you have got to have a really great execution team. Like the founders have just got to be A grade totally an A A team so um, I try and meet them I I look at their idea I think you know is it an iteration of something that already exists it's accepted rather than a groundbreaking new thing that we no one's ever done before so um, that's kind of the um, the the test the, the the litmus test you know and do I believe that they can do it? So then I, and so to be fair, out of my, all my other investments, they are all tracking really well. So I've had one good exit. Yeah. One good exit where I, you know, almost quadrupled my money, my original seed investment, a bit more than that actually. And then um, a couple of others on, on their way to um, really good exits, probably another one that's a couple of that were startups that are now cash flow positive. So Although I've had one really big failure, 
all the others are actually looking pretty good, actually. So I feel a bit better about it like, than, than uh, I did about the others. So, yeah. yeah. So um, is you and Simon do business together or he, he's doing his own thing? Do you guys think? He does his own thing. Um, he so he looks after our property. We have some properties, uh, residential property, and we are also looking at commercial property. So um, just prior to all this happening, actually, I was um, looking to buy commercial industrial property in New Zealand, and I'd gone and looked at a few things, and then the world just turned like this, right? I mean, upside down, and now it's like, oh, I'm so glad I didn't back then because. Um, I really, it was, I'd put in an offer and um, one thing, and that I got outbid by one outbid by somebody else. Um, it was the circumstances of things I didn't get it, but and now I'm just like so kind of almost grateful that that didn't happen because who knows what would have been <laughs> whether those tenants could have paid that rent or what, you know. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so between us, we kind of look after. Um, you know, we're kind of like we're semi-retired. We kind of work from home. Um, he does his thing, hang out, walk the dog, you know. Um, Wonderful. Moan about, our, moan about our teenage daughter, you know. <laughs> does she ever leave her room? Will she come down and see us today? You know, <laughs> it's that kind of thing. Um, but, yeah, no, we, we've been together a long, long time. So um, we're like a pair of comfortable old shoes together, you know. <laughs> So um, what scares you the most about this current situation? Yeah, I've been listening to a lot of I, uh, podcasts on and, and I listened to Ray Dalio and I was listening to um, Christiana, I can't remember her last name, uh, the chair of, the, of uh, IMF. And I think this is something, um, it's not the GFC. I think a lot of people are trying to relate this back to the GFC. I think that um, what's starting to come through is that this is something we've not seen in our lifetimes uh, and that the flow-on effects are going to be big. So in New Zealand, although we are an island, we're an island nation, we're tiny, we've only got 5 million people here, um, and we think we're handling all this well on a health front, and we are, mm -hmm. but on the economic front, I'm really worried for our country. So we we produce far more than we can consume. So we have to export just about everything to make any money, right? Yeah. And when you think, and luckily a lot of it is primary um, produce. So people will want food, right? So yeah. hopefully that'll pull us, keep us through. But consumer goods, you know, hospitality, retail, that's just, and I think um, supply chains are going to be disrupted, you know. Yeah. Uh, I just think that it's going to be an interesting next three years. Um, I don't think this is a one-year thing. I don't think by the end of the year we're going to be right. Um, we're just not. If you look at unemployment and uh, what's going to happen in the US, they're talking 30%, 20 to 30%. Um, I think we'll get into at least 10 to 15%, maybe 20 in New Zealand. Mm -hmm. um, so you think about unemployment and, and what the social, what it does to the social fabric. So. I guess from a business point of view, um, it's preserving cash and just survival now um, and coming out the other end and having something unique and or different or, you know, all the things that mattered before about your business, which were your values, your relationships with your customers, do people love your story, were you authentic? All of that 
is going to matter even more coming out the other side. If you didn't have that, if you were just a transactional business, you really are going to have a problem. Yeah. 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 Um, from a social side, society, I think um, if, if governments are not supporting people who were already vulnerable going in, then there is going to be some real issues to deal with on the other side and as much as um, social unrest, you know, civil unrest, do we really want that? You know, no. Um, so people are already talking about the universal basic income. I don't know if that's the answer, um, but definitely I think there will be a lot more social support needed. And so therefore we're looking at countries being indebted for a long time. Um, so, yeah, I think this has got... Um, the feeling of people talk about whether it's a V-shaped recovery or a U-shaped recovery or an L-shaped recovery. I think it's going to be a really long U like that. I think we're going to be like this. It's not going to be like that. It's going to be like, and I don't think it'd be an L. We will get back there because there's so much stimulus being provided, but I do think it's going to be a very long bottom U. <laughs> yeah. That's yeah. I, I I think you get about right now. Like I think it would be a three-year effect. I mean, it's kind of scary. I'm in hospitality industry and kind of like, oh my god, is this gonna be? Yeah. It's gonna take a long before people will be comfortable into traveling. We were yeah. just with the rise of Instagram, everyone's be there in and out, and now we're into this. It's scary. So, yeah, I guess, and every country will probably be a little bit different, right? Mm -hmm. Like, if your country was um, managed it really well on a health perspective and you've got really good tech and you can bring people internationally into your borders and you're confident that you can um, track and trace them and that they're going to be okay if they, that you're letting people in, then maybe that's okay. But I think that's a year away at least for most countries, right? So, Maybe in this 2021, we go back to traveling to some countries that we know have eliminated or have it under control. We might think, oh, yeah, you know, so it's going to be interesting. It's going to be interesting. We don't know. So, um, Marissa, what's something you'd even do if you never made any money? What would I do if I'd never made any money? Or no, what was something that you would do even if you, you never make, made any money? Oh, this is going to sound really crazy. Like, okay, so I have this thing about um, that I think there is this group of women out there because I'm, I'm older, right? I'm getting into that older age group. And I've always loved makeup and beauty and um, looking after my you know, skin, knowing how to apply it and all that kind of stuff. But there's this whole group of women that never grew up with it, right? Mm -hmm. And they're getting to the, a, a sort of demographic now that is like really... Um, still care but they don't know even where to start and they're probably in their 40s or 50s they're not comfortable going to the local counter where there's that 20 year old who's gonna you know it's, so I really have this idea and I, I kind of talk, mentioned to a couple of friends of mine they're like yeah you should do it about doing makeup for older women right like how do you as an old woman not want to look like those painted up you know 20 something year olds with all the you know crikey morphy palettes and all that kind of thing you know <laughs> but you still want to look good but naturally good like you still want so I feel like there's this kind of space that I'd love if I could have the talent to do this kind of video tutorials and say <laughs> you know what I mean <laughs> you know I, I used that used to be my job actually 
I was doing makeup um, for Estee Lauder Company, and we would go to the retirement community, this rich community in Florida. And I remember when I first did the makeup, when I <laughs> really know how to do because when it's mature skin, your brow isn't the same as a young different. Skin. So like so different. you have to pull it and then you blend it, right? And I, I feel bad for the first person to makeup so I don't know how to do it. <laughs> it's funny that they say that. I was shaking. It's like God please help me how to really do this brow or eyeliner. But I feel bad, but I think she just went home. She just went home, but I was embarrassed. My first makeup, I was shaking. <laughs> and that's hard because you're so young, you know, then, and you're like, oh, and you think it's going to be easy, but man, you know, I like, yeah. It's you need a lot like, of talent. Yeah, because yeah. by the time the skin drops, the brow doesn't match. So you really have to pull it and make it even. <laughs> and you can't pull it too much because when you pull it and then you let it go, and then it's like, yes. oh, no, that's, I pulled it up too much. And now it's, so, yeah, it's just, yeah. so I think there was this whole group of women that really, who never, cause, you know, I'm not talking about the women that grew up with makeup because they're kind of more comfortable with it and they're probably starting to learn new techniques to just keep up or, or wearing less is more or whatever it is, right? But there's this whole group of women I know that never wore makeup, you know, never did and just don't even know where to start. And, and now because as we get older, you know, your hair grows out, your skin changes and you're starting to, and you, you lack a little more colour in your face or contrast and now they're going, oh, I do now want to wear a bit more whatever but I don't even know where to start now because I never wore it before and I didn't need to but now I need to and it's like oh no so that would be fun that'd be fun I could just do it for fun you know that's really uh sounds like fun is that the reason why you want to do something in the skincare industry yeah yeah well when I okay like you I went so one of my first after school jobs my mother got me was in the local pharmacy mm -hmm. and it was just one hour a day after school and I'd get one dollar an hour I made five dollars a week okay this is how long it was but in the school holidays they would have me come in full time and I would help clean you know wipe down the shelves and, and then I could serve customers and I loved makeup loved makeup and I remember these lovely older women coming in and because I didn't really know how old I was I think I was maybe 13 or something and they would be asking me about makeup and I'd be like yeah yeah so I'd be matching them with foundation and doing all this stuff at 13 <laughs> I don't know what I do I don't know if they walked out if it was good or not good I don't know but I loved I loved it and I guess that's always been a love of mine since then because I just love that transformative power of it you know um and I do believe that when people look good they can feel good you know it's almost that ex external expression of your internal self you know I feel really great I don't know if I look like how I feel you know and if you can get them and that's why I love it that's why I love it oh, that's, that's amazing. okay Marissa what have been the most influential experiences in your life yeah um so uh I guess there are a few. One is um, my sister died. I had a my one of my um, sisters uh, was killed in a car accident, um, which had a very profound effect on our family, and we're a very close family. Um, and so, I guess in that sense, pretty much about not 
wasting time, you know, just um, being really appreciative of um, my family and, and um, our, each other. That was really important for me. Um, when I was eight, oh no, probably in my early 20s, I don't know if you have it in the US, I think you do, in fact it came from the US, you know Landmark, they have those forum things, yes, you know, yes, yes, yeah, yes. Landmark, yeah. Want me to join. Ask yeah, me. so anyway, when I was in my early 20s, I had this free weekend workshop, right, and I got kind of somebody said, you should do it, oh, I think I think it was free actually, you paid, you paid for this weekend, and I went, and um, and I was at that stage uh, not connected to my family we were I was like, cast out you know we were not talking and I had a lot of anger towards my parents and 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 really the, the one of the transformative things about that weekend was how much and you know Tony Robbins talks about or what uh, a fan as such but he talks about how you can't blame anybody for your life there's no one that takes responsibility except for yourself right and it was that messaging that came out of that weekend because I was wanting to blame my parents for all these things about why I was not doing this or that and how mean they were and made me work so hard through my teens and how I didn't have a fun life, you know, growing up and all this kind of carry on, you know, because you're selfish and whatever you are, a teenager. And so really that transformative thing going, wait, you know, just what? <laughs> I'm responsible for me? What? Yeah, okay, but, oh. So then it was just having to let go of all that and just realise that actually my parents just were doing a really great job with the best resources they had available to them. And, you know, thinking about their childhoods, pretty much they were amazing parents considering what they'd gone through. So just that was really transformative about taking responsibility for my own decisions and, um, and being accountable for my own actions. So that, that was really important. And um, probably those two things really. Yeah. Well, that's amazing. You, you know, you figure it out at an early age, like at 20. That's, that's a blessing. It really was. And I, I, I don't, I, I come back to that all the time because I don't think many, some people take a long time to get there. I, I hadn't realized actually um, how that was something that I just understood and was just a part of me um, from then on. But a lot of people um, still carry this kind of baggage of, yeah, right, of who they could look externally to, to why they, their life hasn't turned out the way that they yeah. hoped, you know. Um, and, yeah, but I think entrepreneurs, we typically do a little more self-examination maybe because we've had failures and, you know, we want to grow. Typically, I think entrepreneurs are very growth-oriented. Um, women, I think, as well. But I do know, I do know women who uh, have been disappointed in life you know that I call them the disappointed women you know or disappointed people there's this group of people that have been disappointed and have been let down by life you know and you can see them and it's like no no life didn't let you down you that was the life you created you know or chose or whatever and I mean like bad things happen to people it's not like I'm not saying external things don't happen it's just understanding how to respond to those things right yeah, 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 no, totally. So what do you see as your place or purpose in life? Yeah, we went through this exercise in EO and, uh, when I went to our Asia Bridge Forum and um, they talked about having like a little um, two action words, like two words, like an action word or a verb and then a 
thing. And I was like, what is it? What is it? So on my LinkedIn profile, I call it create, creating success, you know, because, and I'm not sure that's exactly right. I'm not sure that they're exactly the right words. But what I mean by that is that whoever I help or whatever I do, I want it to, to be, to achieve its outcome. Like what is the outcome we're trying to achieve? What is it we're trying to do? Um, or what is a good solution, you know, and helping people get there or um, understanding what that is for myself or, or my family or whatever is really, um, and, and so I do a lot of connecting of different people together because I want, I feel like if I know lots of people, if I know someone that could help this person, why not connect them? And so it's really about trying to bring all the things together that give people the most opportunity for success or the outcomes that they're looking for that's kind of my purpose I love doing that and love seeing that happen yep wow that's amazing um Marissa what would be your what would be your advice to anyone who's planning to start their own business or still in the business but really wanted to scale what would be your advice so yeah I always talk about this thing about you can be boutique or you could be large, but in the middle is what I call no man's land, right? So um, you really have to understand that the, the journey to getting large, right? And um, or staying boutique, like what is one of the two different scenarios? So boutique, typically you, you, you're highly profitable, you know, typically you're, um, uh, you know, you're quite hands-on and operational in the business and um, you are, you know, a key person in the operation. To scale, you need a lot of cash. You need to know you've got the investment to get you to big. Uh -huh. And big is good because you are less operational. You probably can actually have less stress if you have the right leadership team around you, right? So it is worth doing it if you know you can get there and you have a plan to get there and you know how much money you need to get there. So you've either got the investment behind you or you've got the borrowings that you can borrow or whatever. I think in this time with what's happening right now, um, there are opportunities. And if you have got a good source of cash, you have a good thing, then potentially now is actually a good time to do it if you, because the runway might be quicker if you've got a good offering. Um, because less competitors, you know, people falling over, that kind of stuff, um, cheap acquisitions. So I would say having knowing that it's a what the journey looks like to get to big and knowing that you've got enough capital behind you um, and that you've got good advisors around you to help you get there as well, good support because it's tough. Um, so, yeah, scaling. And I think, um, what was the other side, part of the question? I can't remember now. <laughs> What would you like for anyone? Like, yeah, the scaling and what would be like for a startup? What would, what advice would you give them? A startup, yeah. Um, depending on the startup, like you know, a services business is so different to starting up a, a product business, as I've learned. So, you know, with a services business, it's about people having enough people, paying people, and your two biggest costs typically are your staff and your rent, right? Um, which is with most businesses. So then it's like uh, with services business, you can usually scale up quite quickly because you just hire more people, mm -hmm. right? And you train them and they can start billing, right? Whereas with a um, production, a, a marketing-led consumer product business, 
it's marketing cost, right? So you're really having to invest in lots of um, marketing and knowing how to brand build. And that's a really different uh, exercise. So I think for startups, it's really what type of startup you are, uh, but really, again, having enough capital requirements, knowing what the, um, what is the, what is the trigger point that tells you that this business is a go or no go, right? What will tell you is that when your first customer pays for your service, that you that it validates that someone wants it and is prepared to pay for it, or is it when you have um, a thousand products sold? Like, what is the go no go signal that this business is viable? I think because some people keep flogging a dead horse, right? You've seen, yeah. I know people who, you know, they keep putting more and more money into something and you just know it's not going to work. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, I tell no. people, yeah. I tell people like, give it two years. If you're not seeing any growth, move on and do something else. Yeah. Other people yeah. are into it, even though we all know it's not working, but yeah. they just don't want to give up. Yeah. And you know, that phrase called sunk cost, you know, where you've sunk so much into it that you just keep thinking, if I just put a bit more in or a bit more in, it'll be right, it'll be successful. And look, just, yeah. it's a sunk cost, walk away before you put good money after bad. <laughs> a lot of great wisdom there. Um, how do you want to be remembered? Oh, yeah. I think, um, I, I think I'm, I would like to be remembered as that um, I was, I brought joy or happiness and I was a positive person, you know, um, I, I'm not, I don't think I'm going to do anything. You know how there's lots of people doing lots of meaningful things, right? Um, I, 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 I guess my, I would like that I have somehow helped people on their journey on entrepreneurship and that um, I was generous with my time and resources and, um, and there I was, you know, I was present people and engaged with people and particularly with my family like particularly with my daughter and that you know she feels that she can she's well supported and that she is well loved you know and and I guess that's 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 it wow well Marissa thank you so much for your time I enjoyed talking to you um this is you know, this, this gives me more time to get to know you. I know the last time we were chatting, that was short, like it was in a dinner in Portugal. I enjoy that time. And so I appreciate you um, spending this time and getting in the show. It's so, well, I had so much fun talking to somebody outside my isolation bubble. <laughs> so. <laughs> Yeah. So it was great for me too. Yeah. So Marissa, what, where can they find you? Your website, your handle? So um, we have a website, but we haven't launched it yet. So, um, which is rnaskincare.com. Uh, we also have a Facebook page, but um, probably the easiest um, thing is just to find me under Marissa, my dog, Marissa Fong um, on Facebook and um, Instagram is Marissa underscore B underscore Fong. Yes. So, yeah. All right. Thank you so much and uh, stay safe. Bye. You too. Bye. Have a good day. Bye. Bye.